Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today I'm talking to Morgan Jerkins, who's the author of Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots, which is out now from Harper. For a full transcript of this episode, check out the show notes or head over to readingwomenpodcast.com and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. So I've been very excited for this book. Uh, In the last year, I read The Cooking Gene by Michael W. Twitty, who looks into his ancestry. And I also read The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Workerson, which is about the Great Migration. Um, And this book is the beautiful blend of lots of ideas in those two books. And so Morgan Jerkins goes on her journey of looking into her own ancestry, and she divides the book into different sections depending on what part of her family tree that she is researching. And she starts the book out with food and thinking about the food that her mother cooked for her and her grandmother cooked for her and how that relates to her identity as a black woman. And she's from New Jersey and decides to go down to the South where her family is from and to check that out and see what she can find. And what proceeds from there is this amazing journey that is an adventure, but also a a journey of self-discovery. And I really love the way that she was able to give us a front row seat into her experience uh, of heading to these places and her emotional journey of coming to learn more about herself and where she came from. And it is a beautiful book. And as soon as I finished it and felt like she had just done this full circle journey and it's so emotionally satisfying at the end when she gives you, you know, some of her own background of some of the places that she's moved to. And it was just very, very well done. And I'm very excited to see this from Morgan Jorkins. So before we get started with the interview, I want to give you a little background on Morgan. Um, She is the senior editor at Zora and is a visiting assistant professor at Columbia University School of Arts. Her debut essay collection, This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, and Feminist in White America from Harper Perennial came out in 2018 and received so many amazing reviews and accolades uh, and different things. So definitely go check that out if you haven't already. And her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and Elle, and so many others. And so she is very prolific. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Morgan Jerkins. Well, welcome to the podcast, Morgan. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited too. I am so thrilled for your book. It was one of my most anticipated and then it was moved, but uh, now we're here. Uh, (laughs) So how does it feel to have like your book about to head out into the world and uh, reach so many new readers? I'm nervous. I'm very nervous. And I didn't think I was going to be this nervous because it's not my first time at the rodeo. Um, But it is different circumstances. Uh, As you mentioned, my book was moved uh, to August instead of its original pub date, which was May 12th. And that and I was happy about that, actually, because of the pandemic. But then also the protest happened. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And there was so much happening in the world. So 
I'm hoping that it reaches new readers, many new readers, fingers crossed, and that it finds its place amidst all the other uh, media coverage that's going on. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited for it. And I think with a lot of people picking up the warmth of other suns, this is related in the sense that it's looking at the, you know, a descendant of people who left the South during the Great Migration. Um, So I guess the place to start is, you know, what is the Great Migration and how did that kind of inspire you maybe to tackle um, this topic? Absolutely. So the Great Migration was a period in American history roughly from 1910 to 1970, where millions of African-Americans fled the South and resettled in different places across the United States. They fled the South for many reasons. Uh, One of the biggest reasons is racial terrorism. Uh, meager wages, unemployment, those sorts of things, which is due to the legacy of slavery and, you know, being black in America. And I wanted to write about it because I'm a millennial and I spend a lot of time online and I had been seeing uh, these conversations happening amongst black Americans across the country with regards to the things our parents would say, uh, the type of uh, cookware we'd have in our kitchen, um, the different traditions. And I was interested in why is there a, how was there a root there? I mean, we're all from America, but America's so large. And when I started to speak to families like mine who had been based in the North for generations, we had these similarities, but we were like, we we don't know the totality of our stories not so much our stories, you know, originating from West Africa, but just in America. You know, where where did we originate from? And if we did originate from a particular place, have we ever visited? Those sorts of omissions really fascinated me because I thought that those omissions were places in which I could investigate. And so I thought to myself, I said, you know, why don't I just travel backwards and try to trace those migratory routes and bridge the gaps between those who remained on their ancestral lands and those who fled? And what were the consequences of that with regards to how we consider our identities, our oral histories, our land, and systemic violence against us? And your last book was a collection of essays So what was it like tackling this project that is more of a continuous narrative versus your essay collection? Oh, my goodness. Well, I will say I feel like this essay, this book is is night and day um, for my essay collection. I mean, there's still a personal element for sure. But my first book was so, so personal. And perhaps in certain ways it was claustrophobic, right, because it was focused on on me. And then, you know, I, there, were, there were other participants like my mother made a made a made an appearance in their friends of mine, sisters. But this one, I, I wanted to explore more because I knew that my story was larger. It was a part of a larger context of black American experiences that are similar, but not so similar that there's still some distinctions there. And I wanted to know how. And I always believed that much of Af- much movement characterizes so much of African-American life. And I thought about, well, why did we move? Why do we continue to move? And what does that speak to our resilience? And yeah, it was like throughout the creation of this book, I realized that I was traveling to places that, I, that I'd that i never been before, hence the title Wandering Strange Lands, which is also um, from a line from an Arna Bontemps poem where he speaks about, you know, is there something that we have forgotten? And that really spoke to me because even though I'd never been to some of these places, I realized like still it's a part of me. It's a part of our collective history. And and like I said, there's so much at stake. 
In the beginning of the book, you give an anecdote about how one day your your father pulled out a photo and said, these are your sisters, and you had never heard that you had had sisters before. Can you talk a little bit about that moment and how it related to your journey of writing this book? Absolutely. So I'll never forget, there was a moment um, after my first book came out and my dad said to me, you know, I, I'm actually a, not a, I'm a paraphrase, but he said I was upset that you didn't really include me as much in your first book as you did your mother's. And it was because I lived with my mother my entire life. I didn't really know much about my dad's family. And my mother and my father's relationship was very complicated. It, it ended before I was even born. And so I didn't know about my dad, my dad's other family. And so when I was young and I realized, oh, I have three other sisters this whole time. So the, what else do I know about that family? And that was sort of the impetus of me even understanding as a child that my family tree had way more branches than I thought. And that is why I wanted to open my book with that, because there was also this curiosity but also the shame. And it was like, well, I don't really know who I am. I don't really know how I fit. And, and, and that is, that has persisted throughout my life for years. And you, you have a quote in the early part of the book that says that you felt like an outsider amongst uh, your, your own blood. And I thought that was such a poignant way to phrase it. And, you know, I've, I read the cooking gene last year and, that's something you have a lot of similar aspects of your book to that book. And I think you even quote um, Michael W. Twitty in your book, mm-hmm. you know, looking into your ancestry is such a huge project. Um, how did you even figure out where to start going about writing this book? Well, I, it's, it's tremendous. I, you know, I'll say I had to start from food because even though I knew that my mother couldn't give me the origins of many of the stuff that we did, there was always food to hold on to, food that reminded me of something much older than any of my family members. And I would ask my mom about a particular tradition. I love I loved looking at traditions that we, we feel like we just do, but always has a root there. And, and I thought about how New Year's, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, a lot of African-Americans eat uh you know, collard greens for money, black eyed peas for good luck. And I'm like, well, what is this about? Because it's a little, you know, kooky if, you, if you're if you not a part of the communities. And my mom said, it's just something we did. And I'm like, no, I don't think that that's just <laughs> something you did. That's not, I don't think so. And, and I'm, I think what's great about sometimes when you're being a researcher and an investigator is just don't take things at face value. And when I looked at the recipes that we did, when I looked at the packages for some of the ingredients that we used, there was this Hop and John recipe. And then I was like, okay, what is that from? Then I looked up and that originated from the Low Country, which is a part of a particular region of uh, Georgia and South Carolina. And when I looked at the black people that lived in that area, they're part of arguably the the oldest micro-ethnic group of African-Americans in the country. It is said, it is, it is believed that 80% of enslaved Africans that arrived at the colonies passed through a Charleston, South Carolina dock, which is in the low country. And so I said, okay, well, if you had that many, like arguably that many black people pass through the low country and then spread out 
throughout the centuries and one of the biggest migrations was the Great Migration, then we have a connection to that place. And so why don't I go there first? I knew I had to start by going to the South first, but why don't I start there? And that is where the adventure began. I was so excited for your section where you talk about food. I am obsessed with food and the history of food and all of those sorts of things. And I read The Cooking Gene and um, the Potlicker Papers last year to look at food in the South because I live in South Carolina. And I just really loved seeing you go to the low country and going to Charleston and Savannah and that surrounding area and talking to the people there. It was just, um, I moved here and there's just a lot of history here. And I really appreciate that, especially from a woman's perspective, going down and looking into ancestry. And it's almost like you're trying to solve a mystery. Oh, yeah. Uh, what were some of the expectations that you had going to the South to work on this project? And what were some of the things that surprised you? Oh, man. I mean, I don't I, I don't know what my expectations were, because one of the first people that I spoke to, her name was Tiffany Young, and she's an independent historian based in Georgia in the Low Country. And here was my method, if I could just talk about that for a short while, um, is I knew that any community that I went into, I had to speak to people that were from there before I even traveled there. Some of the communities that I'd spoken to before, they knew what it's like for people to take advantage of them, journalists and scholars alike, to come into their communities, oftentimes interview them without asking for the interviewee's consent and you know, publishing pieces and creating scholarship off of their stories without proper acknowledgement. So I wanted to make sure that they knew who I was by talking to me, by looking at my professional website, by by seeing that, you know, there was actually a book deal for this particular project before I went down there. But when I spoke to Tiffany Young right there in my former studio apartment, she told me that when I get down there, it's going to be nothing like I had ever seen before. And when she said that, I, I feel like my expectations just vanished. I knew that I just had to be open. And I love this question that you had about what are things that surprised me so much because I thought I'm not going to say I, th I thought I knew everything about black American identity, but I am a black American and I've lived my entire life as one. But when, but you know, oftentimes in black communities, we say black people are not a monolith. And it wasn't until I had taken these journeys or taken this journey that I realized the most visceral sense of what that meant, because when you go into these communities and you see the devastation at the same time, the fight to preserve so much of the history that has these ramifications for black Americans across the country, it just blows my mind. I mean, for example, um, the trail of tears when, uh, former president Andrew Jackson forced, uh, of indigenous people to move across the Mississippi River into Indian Territory, which is now known as Oklahoma, a Midwestern state. Um, I didn't know that African Americans occupied them, was on that journey with them. I didn't know that there were Native tribes that owned slaves. I didn't know that pre-emancipation, that there, that there were free Black people in the United States. I didn't know that there were Black people who owned slaves themselves. This history was never taught to me. Those are just a few things without spoiling it all 
that I, I just I, I wasn't taught that it wasn't taught in my family. It wasn't taught in the school system. And because of that, that is why I argue that these ruptures in our cultural memory and these fractures and what we know happen. That is very interesting is you're talking because there is an essay I read by Desmond Ward in I think it's the fire this time where she looks at her own ancestry and I'm never going to um this isn't an exact quote but it's you paraphrased it's like it's a it's a privilege to know where you come from oh yes and I really f- felt that throughout your your book because you go down like you said in South Carolina you talk to the Gullah Geechee community there and uh, I actually watched an episode of Padma Lakshmi's Taste the Nation, and she does an entire episode on it. Oh, my God. Yeah, everyone's like, you got to send Padma a book. Send her a book. <laughs> and I was like, I'm trying. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I will just say this. I feel honored and blessed that if I ever have the chance to become a mother, my children will be able to ch- trace their family history back some 300 years now because of the work that I've been able to do. I hope that when other black people read this book, that they are inspired to trace their history and to be okay where it leads, even if it makes them uncomfortable at times, to be okay that there might be some false starts. And, you know, many times you have to circle around certain types of mountains to get to these discoveries. But it is so important to know who you are you know, and, and, and a lot and so much has been taken from us. This is one of the things that I wanted to clearly elucidate in the book that it's not just because of slave, you know, because of, you know, the transatlantic slave trade, that voyage where we were stripped of our names and we were, you know, we were stripped of our families. But even on American soil leading into the present day, so much has been stripped from us. And what are the consequences of that for African-Americans who are the descendants of those who fled, who are the descendants of those who stuck on their land or the descendants of those whose stories have been erased or who the documents of said stories have been defiled? What are the what are the consequences of that? It's so important, you know, and it fills you with a sense of pride. It fills you with a sense of an anchor. It fills you with a sense of passion that something is bigger than you. And that is something that I feel like in spite of all the the facts, some of the horrific facts that I laid out in the book, that is what is so inspiring for me as a writer and as a black woman. You can definitely see you processing that in the book and you kind of give us a a front row seat to that. Uh, And one of the moments that sticks out is when you're in New Orleans and you're researching Creole culture and trying to understand that uh, that side of your family. It, you know, you're going to research your father's side, and there's a lot that you didn't know going into this. Uh, so, what were some unique challenges that you faced in Louisiana? Because it seemed like a very different process than when you were uh, researching over in South Carolina and Georgia. Right. So I was actually in uh, Natchitoches Parish in Louisiana. And then I was also in St. Martin Parish, which is a part of the Acadiana region of, of Louisiana. And man, the whole time I was writing that section, I was like, I am so afraid of the backlash that's going to happen because when we think of the word Creole, like as I mentioned in my book, if you're not from that area or even if you are, it can it can uh, it can be seen as a pejorative 
Creole could be seen as, you know, these are black people, light skinned black people that don't want to be identified, don't want to identify as black. They're anti-black themselves. <laughs> and and they, they're oh, they're uppity. You know what I'm saying? And I was afraid of detail. I'm like, no, Creole was an actually distinct group prior to Louisiana even becoming a part of the United States. I mean, they were there. They had these, some of them had these self-governed towns and they intermarried. And there was this caste system between the whites, blacks, and Creoles. And it was hard for me to write about it because as I mentioned earlier, I didn't know there were people of color who participated in the plantation economy. When I grew up, it was white equals slave master, black equals slave. And that wasn't true in Louisiana. Those binaries were not uh, dichotomized, dichotomized meaning two. And so that was hard for me because when I looked at my own family tree, I realized not all of you were enslaved. And that made me uncomfortable because so much of what I thought my family, my like my black history was, was streamlined. My ancestors were captured from, from or near the West African coast. They arrived at the docks of the colonies. They worked. They were freed, emancipation, you know, the civil rights movement uh, and and then Obama. Right. And then but you realize it was a lot more complicated than that. And sometimes your ancestors, your ancestors were all categorized as black and something. And some of them participate in the plantation economy themselves. And it's hard to write about that because it complicates what I think of my blackness. My blackness, I thought, was so much rooted in being opposite white in terms of power, in terms of capital, in terms of social st- social status. Like white is on this side and then black is on the all the way on the other side of the spectrum. Then I found out that my ancestors were somewhere oscillating in the middle. And I had never considered that before. And I never thought about what it would make me feel on an emotional level as I'm trying to trying to humble myself on an intellectual level. And that was something that I also wanted to clearly detail in my book of how it made me feel to confront that so the readers can understand that I'm not just laying it out to be laying it out. This, this, this doesn't make me feel good either. And I'll tell you why. And then I go into that. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about your book is that you're taking us on this journey with you. You're not like coming back to report what you find. No, we're like with you every little you know step of the way. And the way the book is structured is where these different you know, areas of the country primarily that you focus on and and research. And it's like some sort of like different episodes in like a mini series or something where (laughs) you're going to go investigate your history. And that's something I really appreciated because each section of you learning about your family's history is very different and bring something new to the table. Yeah. I mean, I will say that there were certain parts of my journey um, where I was not um, alone. I, I definitely had liaisons. I in Louisiana specifically, I had uh, a scholar uh, accompany me, a, a professor um, accompany me on that part of the trip. And when I was in certain parts of the United States, I would have liaisons meet me um, in particular parts. Um, um, while I, when I arrived, but there were many other times where 
I was traveling by myself. And I love what you said earlier about just being, you know, a woman traveling. I, 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 to this day, I'm still emotionally processing, like, how did I travel to these places without so much as a weapon to, to keep myself safe? Because I, I, mean, I had people who were risking their lives to show me certain things. And I still don't know. All I knew was that I had a deadline <laughs> that I had to meet. <laughs> and yeah, and I wanted to, and I wanted to bring the readers into these intimate spaces because I'm, I'm an intimate kind of writer. My first book was incredibly intimate, but also because in those hotel rooms, you know, in the nooks and crannies of some spaces, I was by myself. And I wanted the readers to understand that. I just keep thinking about this this moment in the in the book where you sit down and you're trying to process that what you just said about how some of your ancestors participated in the plantation economy. And I read that section and I immediately got on a group chat that I'm in and was like, guys, you need to read this book. Like just drop whatever you're doing and read this book because I think that um, having read both of your books, like it's like you've grown and expanded as as a writer, which is always great to see in a writer's career. And I think that moment really hit this book home for me because we are part of that journey. It's a very emotionally vulnerable place. And that can be difficult to communicate for people who may have never been to this place that you've been to. And I think you just did a great job with that. Well, well, thank you. I, I, I was so, I think that's another part of my nerves. It's like, as a writer, you always want to make sure that you don't have that sophomore slump, right? That you're constantly challenging yourself and you want to grow. And, you know, with me, my career, like my first book was published at 25. And so I wanted people to see that, you know, she's growing and she's maturing, not only as a writer, but as a person. And that people see that, you know, yeah, I can write about myself, but there are bigger things to write about. And I and I I'm glad that you were able to see that. And I hope others see that as well too. I I I definitely think they will. Another one of the things that you investigate, which I had never heard really any history on this before, was the history of uh, Black Indigenous people. Oh, yes. So you go to Oklahoma and investigate that. Could you talk a little bit about that part of your journey? Absolutely. Well, first I'll say that I, there have been scholars who have been doing this work. Um, Erica Coleman is one of them. Uh, Tia Miles is another one. Um, that have that have been doing this work of the, the the ties of Black and Indigenous people, but yes. So, as I mentioned in my book, I know many Black people who say that they have Cherokee in their family, and you know, right now in recent times, we tr- we I've noticed in a lot of different circles that it's been dismissed. It's been dismissed because it's like, oh, you're trying to claim a heritage that's not own, that's not your own. It's anti-black. It's it's maybe a, a, a an effect of trauma because perhaps like your trigger warning, your your one of your ancestors was raped by a white man, and instead of claiming white, they claim indigenous. But then I realized I said, but if this story is so common from coast to coast. How is it that everybody's grandparents how is are lying? Is, are, is, are all of our black grandparents under some collective delusion? Are they participating in this conspiracy? I didn't believe that. So then I did some research and then I found that 
those tribes that former President Andrew Jackson forced to migrate across the Mississippi River into Indian territory known as Oklahoma, those were slaveholding tribes. And, and they were based in the South. And the Cherokee tribe was the largest slaveholding tribe in the United States. So if it is the case that this, these slaveholding tribes own that they owned black people and they migrated across to Oklahoma. How, who's to say that everybody's grandparents online? There has to be connections there. And like I said earlier, I never knew that black people accompanied indigenous people on the Trail of Tears. I didn't know that this was a black issue as well as an indigenous issue with regards to movement and forced migrations and state violence. And that blew my mind because I always thought that they were so separate and, and they're not separate. Um, and yeah, that, I mean, going into Oklahoma was another part of the journey that was completely foreign to me. I had no idea of not only that this, I that like, People are claiming that they are part of these tribes, just like my parents, just like my grandparents have. But that the fact that they're not being recognized is so much rooted in systemic racism and anti-blackness that it's more than just oral history that we might may or may not think it's unfounded. It has to do with land theft. It has to do with missed opportunities. It has to do with with murder and other types of associated violences that I was just I was blown away. Weren't there a, a lot of um, legal things going on that kept black people from, you know, officially recognized by the government uh, claiming their ancestry? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first, we have to just say that there's something called the Dolls Rolls that happened. And the Dolls Rolls for the Five Civilized Tribe, there's two categories. Um, either you're a citizen by blood which means you get a blood quantum, which is like full blood, half blood. And then you're a freedman, which means that you're considered black, but you don't get a blood degree. Prior to the Dolls Rolls, there was no there was no such thing as blood degree. You are part of the tribe. But now that's happening is that some of these nations, you cannot get certain medical benefits uh, uh, housing benefits, schooling benefits, or even, or, 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 or just in terms of land, you can't get that unless you have a blood quantum, unless you're considered a citizen. So it's almost like a separate, but equal thing going on. Like there are, and that's what I wanted to detail is that there are people to this day who are fighting because they know their ancestry, but yet they're not being visibly seen by the nations themselves. This is another reason why it's important to know our, our history. And I really appreciate you talking about that. And then in the book, you talk about the different people that you talk to in each place that you research. And then there are like um, notes and like research things in the back. So people can go learn more if they want to. But this was a section that, you know, I've lived in the the South for over a decade. So I knew generally speaking some, you know, highlights along the way as you were in that section of the country. But when you moved to Oklahoma, it was like a, a whole new world of of learning. And it's almost like your research process changed a little bit when you went to Oklahoma as well, depending on what your needs were. Thank you. No, thank you. And I will say, and this is, and again, I had another woman. Her name is Lietta Samson Osborne, who's categorized as a Seminole freedman, risked her life to show me certain things. She's had her life threatened 
because of the activism that she has been doing. I remember when, and I, and I don't want to spoil it, but you've read it. So it's like, I remember that we actually had to have other Seminole Freedmen men accompany us to particular sites because they were afraid of what might happen to us if two women who were, who were no taller than five feet were by themselves. I'd never had that in any other area of the country that I was detailing. It was the it was the area that I was most afraid for my life. There are so many different parts of this book where you go through all sorts of like like national treasure, but discovering your ancestry almost. To me, it read like uh, on one side uh, an adventure where you're going to learn mm-hmm. more, but also a very important process of understanding yourself and learning who you are. And at the end of the book, the last migrant that you look at is yourself when you head to California and you do some child acting. Uh, so to that's the last section of the book. So what drew you to ending with your own migration? I mean, structure-wise, it, it makes beautiful sense. But what was something that you, you wanted to share with that? Yeah. Well, I said, okay, because I, I mean, I was doing all this work in the South and the Midwest and someone was like, well, are you going to go out West? I'm like, but why? And then they were like, girl, you have to go out West. You, you can't just go to all these different regions and not go to the West. And then I was like, well, who am I going to talk about in the West? And then I was like, oh, I could talk about me. I migrated to California after the after, you know, obviously decades after the Great Migration, but I went and that was when I was like, okay, so now why did I go out there? And did I go out there for sort of the same reasons that African Americans in the past went out there? Yes. And I feel like that was when I finally realized, I asked my editors, I was like, well, hey, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't migrate during the Great Migration, but I'm still a part of this legacy and I moved out there. Do you think that's still relevant? They were like, absolutely. And I love that. I feel like that was probably the perfect way to end it. It's like, okay, I'm going to bring you back around to me now. And I thought there was a lot of parallels that you you learned there, as you mentioned in the book of, it's not a spoiler to know that you went back home to New Jersey and the parallels that you create with that in the South, how some people after the Great Migration went home or children went to go find their ancestors because there was that sense of connection and community and home where they came from. And it was just like a full circle kind of moment. And I structure is beautiful. I'm just a super, I'm a super nerd. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm going to say something though. It's <laughs> props to my editors. Um, Emily Griffin, who has edited other all-stars like uh, Roxanne Gay, for example, and then Amber Oliver, who was a, a, an, an incredibly wonderful black female uh, editor on the rise who who helped to edit Barracoon, Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon. Yeah, so wow. I lucked out. <laughs> and um, and uh, and so what I want to say, I, I just wanted to say their names. I also I, ac- I actually forgot to say the name of one of the scholars that accompany you on the trip in Louisiana. His name is Antoine Hardy. Um, and I'm thinking of um, James McCall, James No Can Do McCall, who was an underground rapper in Los Angeles who was with me. I also said Leanna, uh, Leanna Sampson Osborne, who was with me in Oklahoma. I have been blessed to find people who that can help to build this up. I needed a village for a book of this undertaking and I was able to find it. And one of the things that I just want to say about it, the full circle moment that you said really resonated with me because 
So much of what we're going through as a nation right now is cyclical. When we, it, it, one of the things that that I, was haunting to me, and was that's a weird thing with timing, is that even though my book was pushed to August, as we saw, as a war, as a nation and, and across the world, that the protests happened with police brutality, and it made me think about James in uh, California, where we were at the intersection of Florence and Normandy, which was the start of the '92 riots, and I asked him, "Did you think the riots were going to happen again?" And he said, yes. And two years later, what happened? The 2020 protests. And it got me to thinking about how so much has been done to curtail black movement in this country. So much has been done to to impede us from being self-autonomous with regards to our land, with regards to our communities, with regards to our lives. And it keeps happening because we are not reckoning with, as a nation, the devastation that we have done time and time again to Black Americans, Black Indigenous Americans, Creoles, Gullah Geechee people, California migrants, Northern migrants. And I hope that this book will not only serve as a document and a talisman, perhaps for some people who are trying to search their individual histories, but a reminder of what has been done so that and an exposure of sorts too. That I, I think that's a great place uh, to end the conversation. It's a beautiful book and I hope so. I hope a lot of people see themselves in it and it's a lot of encouraging and a lot of people pick it up. And like you said, that it's a great reminder as well. So thank you for putting it into the world. Thank you. I, I'm thankful to have conversations like this. I'm, like I said, I'm nervous because again, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a trained anthropologist. I, I, you know, ethnography was something that I never thought that I was going to have, but I have always been a curious person and I've always been a nosy person with regards to black people's stories. And I'm so thankful that it is crystallized in this way. And I hope other people enjoy it just like you. I always like to ask people on the podcast, especially those who are writing about an interesting topic and have obviously read a lot around it. Is there any other books that you would recommend our listeners read if they enjoy your book? Oh, anything written by Jasmine Ward, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything written by Jasmine Ward. Um, obviously, Isabel Wilkerson. Um, I would say um, uh, Namwali Serpel, her novel, The Old Drift. So good. Sarah Broom, The Yellow House. Incredible. Um, I would say uh, uh, Jacqueline Woodson. Um, she definitely has stuff up with, 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 the, with the Great Migration, her poems. Uh, also, Kevin Young. Uh, deals with poems, A Black is the Body by Emily Bernard, Sadia Hartman, A Wayward Lies, Beautiful Experiments, um, Hazel Carby does a lot with ancestry, uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, and of course, Zora Neale Hurston. Well, I think that is a stellar reading <laughs> list. Uh, and I will be sure to link all of those authors and uh, books down below. But uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, Morgan. It's been a delight. Your book is wonderful. And congratulations. Thank you. It was my pleasure. 
like to thank Morgan Jerkins for talking to me about her latest book, Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots, which is out now from Harper. You can find her on Twitter at Morgan Jerkins or on her website, morgan-jerkins.com. And of course, all of that information will be linked in our show notes. You can also head to a link in our show notes to buy the book from bookshop.org, where you can support reading women and your favorite indie bookstore all at the same time. I'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons who support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.